Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com slash governance. IBM. Let's create. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey everyone, thank you for being here. Today on the podcast, I'm sitting with writer, director, and actor Rada Blank. Her debut film, The 40-Year-Old Version, just recently dropped on Netflix. It's a deeply autobiographical piece, following a struggling playwright and professor who suddenly finds refuge in a different medium, rap. Here's a snippet from the trailer. Any more thought on what kind of play we want to write? Remember, if you put in nothing, it'll be nothing. Like your career? Remember this face? She was one of Spotlight Magazine's 30 Under 30 playwrights to watch. We watched, but where'd she go? How are you? Archie tells me you're teaching. How's somebody who ain't had no real hit gonna tell me how to write a play? She ain't no Tyler Perry. I did win a 30 under 30 award. Yes, it was quite a couple of years ago. What do I gotta do? Write a slave musical, an all-white play? This some bullshit. It rang a little inauthentic. I asked myself, did a black person really write this? This some fucking bullshit. Bullshit. Think about me doing hip-hop. Doing what to it? I want to make a mixtape about the 40-year-old woman's point of view. The 40-year-old version is, of course, a play on both the 40-year-old virgin and This is 40, both directed by Judd Apatow. It's an intentional reclamation on Rada's part, a way of creating space for black women to be as flawed, stunted, and vexed as the protagonist in those films, played by Steve Carell and Paul Rudd, respectively. Here, Rada, playing the lead character, mines her own personal history to create a kind of archival piece, a document of both herself and her family in New York. We get into that during this conversation. We also discuss how the themes of this film are interconnected with her own experiences of working as an artist and teacher in New York. Success and failure, false starts and creative disappointments, Boundless ambition met with debilitating rejection. This feeling that, by age 40, you have to have arrived at somewhere substantial. This feeling that time is not on your side. During our talk, we speak of the artist that inspired her and this film. And in turn, we've posted images and photos on our website. In case you want a visual reference when talking about Carrie Mae Weems, Carrie James Marshall, and Roy DeCarava. 
You can follow along at www.talkeasypod.com slash RADHA, R-A-D-H-A. And now, on to the show. Rada Blank. Hey, Sam. <laughs> How you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm finally admitting to myself my nerves are a little funky. We are having a drive-in premiere tonight in New York, and the movie comes out tomorrow. I'm just admitting to myself that I do have some nerves. Before, I was acting really cool, you know. I was acting really too cool for school, but now I'm like, no, you're you're feeling something. Just own it. What has it been like to release a movie... In this strange, precarious moment? I don't know the full answer to that. I'll probably know by Sunday morning when everyone has a hold of it. But so far, it's been, I got to say, bittersweet. When the pandemic hit, struck, knocked us down, I was really in the space of like, what am I doing? Why am I calling myself a filmmaker? Like, Another Black person got killed by a police officer. You know, like, I just didn't know if what I was doing made sense in the world. And then many other people went into hiding because we didn't have a choice. And I found myself watching lots and lots of content online. I watched High Maintenance again. I I watched a whole bunch of shit. And I had a profound appreciation for what it is to tell a story, especially in times like this, because I know people say it all the time, like, oh, story and and film, art content, it really can soothe the soul or create some kind of escape. But it did for me. A few months into the pandemic, I was like, okay, like, if this is what the work does for people, then maybe now is the time to put something out that makes people laugh or makes them introspective, uh, contemplative, whatever, like look at their own life. Some people say that they are, their spirits are lifted from the film. And so I'm like, okay, then, you know, I'm not much of an activist, but maybe the film can be my form of activism and just helping people feel better. So I wouldn't say I've had a full circle moment. We're still in a pandemic. You know, again, my premiere is a drive-in because we can't make any physical contact with each other, which is painful. I want to hug people. But I think I've come around to, to see like what a privileged position it is to be a storyteller in this time. So I want to go back to a different time. What did your life look like in New York City before you decided to make this film? Before that, I had gotten a screenwriting job, one of my firsts. And I was, oh, it was jubilance. It was like, oh, wow. I, You know, as a teaching artist, I'm constantly telling kids, like, you can make, you can really make a career out of writing. I promise you, you can be a living professional artist. And in that moment, I felt like, oh, good, I'm not a liar <laughs> because I've I've been accepted into the union. I'm getting a paycheck to write a script. And then I got fired <laughs> off of that job. <laughs> so, I mean, this would have made for that nice little PSA where I go back to the school and say, hey, kids, I don't know about those dreams because I just got fired for one of mine. Um, No, I, I got fired off of that job and... Um, I was devastated. You know, it was my first real professional screenwriting job and I got fired. But the beauty of the moment, and my mom said this and and she meant it. She said, you know, one day you're going to thank those people for firing you. And I'm really grateful that they did because um, it created the fuel behind the project. I started writing it as a web series, mainly because anyone can upload any content, you know, as long as it's not considered hazardous to one's eyes or health. And I was like, I'm going to write it, direct it, star in it, produce it. And this way I can't get fired. You know, like I literally was just trying to take control of how my voice showed up in the world. So, yeah, I, I was working on this web series and it gave me this thing to do. Like I, I enjoy teaching. I love working with young people. But ultimately, I wanted to be a writer and just found that between my plays not really getting produced in the way that I thought that they would and getting fired off of that job, I just needed to do something that would kind of, not to sound like the character, but like to take my life back, to take my voice back. And um, that was the beginning of the the 40-year-old version. As you're pitching projects 
to the predominantly white world of theater in New York, what did their criticism sound like? It was an odd kind of rejection because they'd, they'd tell me how much they loved the plays. Like, oh my God, this is so good. Mm-hmm. And then they'd say, what else do you have? <laughs> Which is a no. You know what I mean? At least for that particular play. So, And how did you handle that rejection? How I handled it? I guess I am the Taylor Swift of filmmaking. You know, I put that shit in a movie. Um, because I could not understand like how in one breath someone could tell me something was so good. And this is after I had success with my first and only major production. It was a play called Seed about this black social worker who becomes obsessed with the welfare of a black genius from the projects and how this 40-year-old single childless professional woman and his young mother People have compared it to Little Man Tate or something like that, but set in Harlem. I had that play produced and people were like, "This, oh my God, this is going to Broadway. This is it. I'm telling you, this is your moment. This is your breakthrough. Didn't happen like that at all. Um, <laughs> didn't happen at all. But I would take these meetings after having that kind of success with these lit folks who I realized are like very enthusiastic about new talent, but don't have the power to green light a lot of things. I think they do, their job is to kind of put stuff in front of the artistic directors, like the people who are going to make that decision. And they were always advocating for me, but I think they knew the spaces they were in. So they were kind of like, do you have something else? Like, what else else do you have? Because I want you to win. So it was weird. Everyone says they love this play, and yet there wasn't much real estate for my plays in New York theater. When you did eventually decide to write this. It was originally intended to be a 10-episode web series. Yeah. I believe in the midst of shooting the first two episodes, your mother passes away. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the passing of uh, a mother is at the, the heart of this movie. Mm-hmm. And there are clear parallels between that character, Rada, and you, Rada. Mm. Where were you at in that moment? doing those two episodes as your mother passed? I was, I was like in a very raw space anyway, because I was approaching 40. And I think I felt like this project was my way to break out. I'm approaching 40 and this is what I'm going to do. You know, in my movie, the character's like, I'm going to lose 40 pounds for my 40th. And for me, it was like, I'm going to, make this um, a web series. I think I had just turned 40, right? Because my mom and I have the same birthday and we got to celebrate our birthdays together. But yeah, I was like, oh, this is it. This is the thing. I'm going to shoot this web series and I'll exercise these demons out of me. People will see me as an artist and then she passes away. And it really did devastate my life. We spent so much time together. We share the same birthday. My mom was my film buddy. You know, she's someone who I would go to see everything from Tyler Perry to Dancer in the Dark with. You know, like, we just, film was our thing. And so, naturally, I had a small identity crisis. I just couldn't, I wasn't sure who I was without her. And so I just started to retreat into myself and just go into a ball, pretty much trying to figure out how I would move forward. At one point, someone asked me to perform. You know, I've done a lot of solo performance stuff. And they were like, oh, you know, this is like two months later. We'd love for you to do this thing. And the work involved being characters and stuff. And I just was like, I can't do that. I, I can't. I can't be a character. I can't pretend. But I did feel the impulse to perform. It was almost like I felt my mom telling me, like, just go out and perform. You'll feel better. And so that's when I started performing as Rodimus Prime because with the web series, you know, the idea was like you'd watch 10 episodes and then there'd be this mixtape that you could download for free that connected to the narrative. And so I kind of just put the web series aside, kind of threw it out and then just started performing as Rodimus Prime. And it really was a catharsis for me. It really did, very much like the film, it really did get me through It's not a character. This really is just another part of myself. And that part of myself was not afraid to talk about the loss, was not afraid to contemplate her age or having a younger lover. You know, I have a fat girl sex anthem called Poke Chops. That's P-O-K-E chops. You know, like it was it was where I was my most vulnerable and exposed, but also my most confident 
and fearless. And so I really did lean on on Rodimus Prime and I just would go out and perform like Joe's Pub, uh, different spaces around New York. And then I ended up um, at the Speaker Box Festival in Norway doing the Rodimus Prime 40-year-old version mixtape show. So it went from this web series to this live cabaret, kind of a comedy solo piece, you know. But it really did get me through. I know people say that all the time, but like it gave me something to do with my body and my pain and my grief by taking on, by relenting, I should say, to my alter ego. When on mind day, guess what I seen? Another nigga talking about stay on your dean, giving advice on how to wash my ass, how to shit right, stay on the Nubian path. Or Kufis or fabricant taste smell like patchouli, have mad things to say about how to be a queen, how to be pristine. Said tea tree oils keep my vagina clean. Had many, many thoughts of flooding, of verbiage, down with the meat, up with the foliage. Said white man's the devil, and black man guard, but this nigga hotel ain't had no damn job, spent all day barking and to his laptop making bland vegan food as he flips his dreadlocks open voice Omar and mad black academics having Facebook fights with other prophetics flapping his gums between flipping tabs bust off from Pornhub then back to his task of saving black folks one post at a time before black horse he ain't spent a dime why his dough tied up absorbed five G's behind in child support owes back taxes but he maxing on FB trying to kick black facts and educate the youth but fuck fact checking the truth because that's just how them hoes have to do educating the youth but fuck fact checking the truth because that's just how them hoes have to do because when did you realize that you were more comfortable being vulnerable in your alter ego than in yourself i don't know there's just something about being on stage clearly it takes guts to be on stage in front of people it's performance, and yet, if this is possible, it's stripped down. Like, I do it myself. I don't hire a director. I just kind of get on stage, and I'll have projections, and I'll have my DJ, Jamed Kinsey, a.k.a. John Medicine, and we'll just kind of vibe with the audience. And something about music and songs, you're kind of couched in something. It just felt like a natural place to work through those things. And I know that it was a healing for me because— Talking about those very things in a conversation with friends meant crying, you know, but being on stage, I mean, I would let myself cry there too, but being on stage, I felt just like a, I wouldn't say a better version of myself, just a more secure and confident, you know, like when I took that on, it was okay. Anything I said was okay. I remember being on stage at a show and I have a song called If I Had a Dick, (laughs) And it kind of chronicles some of my, I don't know, my encounters with the patriarchy in some of the writing rooms. And if I can remember, it goes, yo, stop interrupting me, bitch, and stop talking over me, trick. Yo, stop acting like you the shit just because your ass got a dick. And it was because... I'd be in a writing room with my bros. We're all cool. And yet all of a sudden, like when I go to talk, I'm constantly being interrupted or I pitch something and the room goes, eh. But when a guy pitches it, it's like, oh, yeah, celebration. And so it's my way of kind of encountering patriarchy. And, you know, those guys came to the show and some of them were like, yo, my favorite song is If I Had a Dick. I was like, really? It's about you. No, I didn't say that. But I had a writer friend one time, a director friend. I was so frustrated with like not getting ahead in theater and wanting to like approach the gatekeepers and complain and let them know about themselves. And they would say, put it in the work. And I was like, no, that's not. But really, like, I kind of couldn't believe that moment. Like, I here I am challenging the sexism. <laughs> Uh, and misogyny in the room in a song and they don't even know it's about them. I love these guys. Like I, I love them to death, but like it was challenging for me. And it was in that moment where, you know, when I went to Hollywood as a TV writer, I really thought I'd be encountering a lot of issues around race. And it wasn't that it was about being a woman. It really was being a woman in a room that's dominated by men And wanting to just be a writer, but sometimes being assigned the task to police the women characters or police the queer characters. You know, like any of the others and people in the margins, (laughs) it was my job. 
to kind of police and make sure that they were PC or whatever. And I don't know, it was a, it was a very challenging experience for me being one of few women in a predominantly male room. And so that's what that song is about is like, I'm thinking I'm going to Hollywood and I'm going to be challenged around racism. And, but really it was just about sexism. That shit is real. Something that's at the heart of this film is a line you said earlier, which is I was approaching 40 in the midst of making this 10 episode web series. Mm-hmm. And throughout this movie, there is a constant conversation around the act of approaching 40. Yeah. 40 is really just an emblem for an age, a time where you are meant to feel secure. Yeah. Or have arrived at the place that you had hoped to arrive at. And in the midst of you going to Hollywood, writing on shows like Empire and, and Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It on Netflix. There's a couple others in there. You're finding yourself and trying to figure out where you would like to land. Mm-hmm. Where did you want to arrive? And is this movie that arrival? I think so. I really do. You know, writing for TV is lucrative. It got me through. I mean, I spent years, I was the child of struggling artists, and I lived that life for so long. And so it was nice to have benefits and to have a check. You know, that direct deposit would go through every week, and it was like, whoo! So I, I had some security as a result of working on the shows. But I was saying to someone who was a former development executive of mine, I was telling her, like, it really was hard for me to be in those rooms because I was sitting on this thing that felt like a singular vision. And the camaraderie, the fellowship that I got from all of those writers from those different rooms, I'm friends with them and I'll be friends with them forever. And it was fun to be a part of a super brain. But there was always this kind of song in my head, so to speak, <laughs> you know, even though I was playing with these other great artists and storytellers, this thing was almost haunting me. So making the film was also like an exorcism. It was something I was sitting on trying to say for such a long time. And now that it's out, I feel one thing I can't say is I can't say I'm not a director. I directed a feature film. It marks like this pivot or this, I guess, coming out (laughs) of me as an artist to the world. Like, here's this thing that I did. I completed it. It's finished. You know, there's no turning back now. But like, it makes all the last year of struggle and adversity so worth it because I guess it just would take this long to get here to say something like this. I don't know what the 30-year-old version would have looked like, but I don't think it would have felt like this film. There's this humor there, but there's there's the intense emotion, you know, the loss, the grief, the rejection, all of that stuff. And I needed to go through that to know how to convey that in a film. And I say that because I don't have training in the space of academia. I did have my one great film class at City College with Professor Carlson. Hi, Professor Carlson. He's still there. But I really didn't take a deep dive into the study of film outside of my own curriculum, watching films and reading screenplays and stuff like that. And so the adversity gave me a story to tell. The experience gave me the confidence to tell that story. Well, for many people, they're going to watch the film over the past weekend and in the weeks ahead. I think what people are going to be curious about is what this vision of New York is to you Mm. and and where it comes from because your mother was a cinephile your dad was a jazz drummer there's a mix of quincy jones music and tribe called quest and yeah clearly the influence of roy DeCavara's photography and you have an amalgamation of influences so what is your movie and what is its worldview to you now i feel like the movie is like an archive of a black creative's life You know, like, again, I was raised by two Black artists who struggled for years. And I don't mean that in a romantic way. No, I mean, like, government cheese and powdered milk, sometimes squatting. It really was a struggle, but my parents were just so creative in how they raised us. So I'm hoping the film is pays an homage to them. You know, there's a scene at the end of the film, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but I finally get to my mom's apartment. And when I walk in, it's my dad's music playing and my mom's artwork on the wall. And my brother is there. So you're in a fictitious version of your mother's apartment. Mm -hmm. Your mom's very real artwork is on the wall. Yes. Your real brother is standing before you, a non-actor 
<laughs> acting with you. Yeah. Your dad's music is playing. You're making a movie for Netflix. There are. Hello, hello. Malcolm Grabwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Strangers and a new family around you making this movie. What is that moment like on those days of shooting there? I think if I thought too much about it, I would have been completely overwhelmed with emotion. It was a big deal that my brother would be in the film with me and could carry a scene. Like some people like, no, really? No, who's the guy who's playing your brother? That's my brother. Like, wait, yeah, okay, he's good. All right, so he's great, fine. I don't want him to get a big head. But it was a big deal that we got to kind of archive our family together. You know, this was before Netflix came along. You know, I was, it was completely independent financing through New Slate Ventures. And these queer Black people came, surrounded me in the film and were like, okay, we're going to support you. We're going to find whatever it is that you need to make this film. And then we went to Sundance and Netflix saw that more of a director's cut of the film. 
then when we came down the mountain, it was like, okay, I definitely, from my six screenings, I learned I needed to tighten certain things or whatever, cut a little bit off. But Netflix was very supportive in it being my film and it still being my voice. And I, I find like, you know, I think what's going to happen in the next couple of years is like it's going to be a real hub for independent cinema. But yeah, like to get that kind of support and not have Netflix say, well, you know, we, we think you should cut it down to 90 minutes or maybe we don't need this. I mean, it, like it still is my raw film, you know, it's still very much my voice. It's not perfect, but it is perfectly me. And I hope black artists or any struggling artists are inspired by it. But I also hope that it makes people feel nostalgic. I'm being very deliberate about black and white. Like one, I'm retrofitting the film into like a time when it, <laughs> the story probably should have been told 30, 40 years ago. But also just this idea of revisiting the idea of the classic New York film, but this time putting people of color in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not to take away from Spike, but like a black woman being centered in the story where she is her you know, she's the storyteller of her life. And then being deliberate about hip hop culture, like wanting to present it in a very vulnerable, sometimes sophisticated, um, but cool tone, you know, of black and white. There's not that oversaturated color. It's not oversexualized. It's not hype, hype, hype. It really is just more about a, a, a quieter version of the culture. But being very deliberate about those choices and working very closely with my DP, Eric Bronco, on getting a look. And then in post, you know, sitting with Nat Jenks and revisiting Roy DeCarava's work and just looking at how he captured this beautiful shades of brown in shades of gray. I just wanted it to look beautiful and I wanted it to feel like authentic. And that has been one of the biggest compliments I've gotten from people from New York is they're like, yep. That's my New York. <laughs> and, you know, you don't sit down and say, I want to write a film that's going to heal people. But number of people who are over 40, over 50, over 60, they say that they see the film and it's the shot in the arm that they needed to maybe dust off that graphic novel they've been working on or, you know, that gazebo they've been trying to build <laughs> in the backyard. I don't know. Like, I hope it does that for people. In case anyone was wondering, Rada is in New York right now. So that's what those um, sirens are as, about. <laughs> this is fitting you made a film about New York. You're in New York. This podcast should have some New York in it. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why you have strangers telling you, I'm going to finish my project. I'm going to finish the gazebo. I'm going to do the graphic novel is because the film is a radical act of self-reflection. Mm. And you very literally do that in the composition with the recurring motif of shots in the mirror. Yeah, very intentional. And there were two in particular influences around the mirror. And that was the work of Carrie Mae Weems and Carrie oh. James Marshall. What I love about their work is, well, Carrie Mae Weems, I feel like as a photographer, you know, she's often using herself as a subject. And the portraiture is like, unapologetically raw, vulnerable, human, naked. And there are moments where she is looking at her reflection in the mirror. But also she, to me, is a reflection of Black womanhood that we just don't see a whole lot unless it's captured by Black photographers. And it's just like, again, a very human, very vulnerable, very soft, very subtle, very intense. And then Carrie James Marshall, I always call him the mirror because his figures are like, this opaque blackness and it kind of invites black people to look at themselves. I know people may not think of that, but I, I consider him the mirror because he creates that opportunity to self-reflect, but he also kind of just, it's like this archival of black life and not black pain. Some of that is in there. Some of that reality is in there just historically, like what black people have gone through in this country. But there also is just this for someone who's painting these charcoal black figures, there's so much light. And there's an image that he has a picture of Harriet Tubman and her husband. But we've never seen Harriet Tubman in that, you know, kind of visage. She's being held with love and sweetness by her husband. And so Carrie James Marshall, him and Carrie Mae Weems were huge influences. And I just, again, I wanted the movie to be a mirror in some way, reflecting Black womanhood in a way that we hadn't seen. You know, this isn't the hands-on-hip, all-knowing, sassy. This is a flawed person. And sometimes her reflection is obscured. You know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But yeah, those are my influences in terms of where the mirrors show up in the film. Carrie Mae Weems' Kitchen Table series mm. is very much in alignment with what's happening in this movie. Mm. 
in terms of the vulnerability, the change that happens over time within those photographs. For people who haven't seen those before, you could Google that right now while you're listening to this podcast. I'm so jealous of people who haven't seen it before because it's that thing when you encounter something for the first time and you're just like knocked down by it. So you're in for a treat. At the heart of those photographs and this film is that woman that you're talking about full of idiosyncrasies and complexities. And there's an undercurrent of a conversation in this movie about the gatekeepers of whiteness and theater that's explicit on the surface of this movie, but also works as a sort of meta conversation about the film industry. Where are you at? I have said this before. I'm probably a very, very lazy activist and I'm a little nervous about I have some autoimmunities, and so I want to go out and protest, but I sometimes can't make it out into the street. And so I do feel, though, that the film becomes my version of responding to those things. You know, there is this reckoning that's happened where well-meaning folks posted their black squares on IG talking about BLM and Black Lives Matter and George Floyd didn't deserve to die, all this other stuff. And then not long after that, people who worked at that institution were like, well, well, hold on now. Wait a minute now, Miss Black Square poster. You overlooked me three times for that promotion. <laughs> and you hired yet another white man to do a job that I'm more than qualified to do. And so there was this reckoning that was happening that's been happening now for the last couple of weeks. I don't know if it's just a rash response. I know that in theater... A number of Black women have been put in positions of power, you know, at the gates, so to speak. And I know it is in response to the racial reckoning that's happening now. How deep it goes, I'm not so sure. There is a movement of Black, Brown, queer, Asian, Indigenous theater artists who are calling out the lack of inclusion, especially in those power positions in theater. It's the We See You movement where they're calling out white American theater. I did not get to sign that petition, but I feel like the film is my signature. And so I'm hoping that there's just more conversations about why has it been that way in theater? People who are programming these main stages of these theater, why is it the same kind of person determines what kind of Black life, Asian life, queer life shows up on that stage? I hope that the film is a part of the conversation on getting that shit right and just creating more equity. The 40-year-old version also plays on the 40-year-old version and this is 40. Is this your Judd Apatow diss track? I don't know if it's a track, but I think I got a couple of bars off in a battle. Like, you know, we stepped in and I was like, yo, Judd, what the fuck? I'm saying, what's up? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it's a diss track, but I'm definitely saying, yo, Judd, I'm here. It's a passage. It is. It's like, it's a moment where I'm just saying like, well, where's our version of this story? Because we are self-deprecating comedic figures in our own lives and stories. But I always say I appropriated his movie title and his running time. You know, why not? People appropriate Black culture all the damn time. And so it's just a little reversal. But I, I respect him. And he's kind of created like, or he's led this uh, cultural shift in storytelling where there's like a a very flawed contemplative, goofy, self-deprecating white guy who's like, I'm turning 40, but I don't have my shit together. And I'm like, yeah, well, black women too. One of the films that also inspired me was Losing Ground by Kathleen Collins. Oh. And the reason I love that film so much is on surface, this particular character, she's a philosophy professor. She's married to a really interesting, eccentric painter, you know, but she's having an identity crisis. She doesn't know who the fuck she is. She doesn't think she's interesting enough. She doesn't know if she's happy. And I just feel like you don't see us in that position. We're usually all knowing, we're sassy, we're pained, you know, we're going through something. Whenever, uh, and a lot of times, Black story, our pain is the conflict. The conflicts are not about like, oh God, do I want to move to Paris or do I want to, you know, like I, I see more and more of that, but we could have more introspective stories. But her film to me was her version of This is 40. It wasn't as much of a, a comedy. It was it was more avant-garde, um, but very interesting film about this person looking in her interiors and not having to have this terrible, horrific thing happen in the plot for her to be an interesting forward-moving character. 
in losing ground, the lead character, which is a woman, a teacher, like you mentioned, is a little bit rudderless. She's married to a painter played by Bill Gunn, Ugh. who's eccentric and vibrant and loud and completely dominates every room he's in, mm. often to the detriment to their relationship. That film is an act of investigation into self. Right. It's an act of trying to find out who the hell I am in this moment and who I want to be. Yeah. Your film is very much in conversation with that. But for the Rada outside of the movie, like the lead character of Losing Ground, what did you find at the end of this film? I found at the end of this film, you know, a way to still confront <laughs> the grief of losing my mom. And I feel like I found a second family in the people who helped me to make the film. You know, it is a very intense experience being on set. You know, sometimes 12-hour days and sometimes we either losing light or time or resources and to see everyone pulled together. There were a lot of Native New Yorkers working on the film. And so there was this investment to like pull together to show our version of New York. And I, I walk away from the film really fortified. We all really made it happen. And this, this identity as a struggling artist, it has to change. It, it has changed. This has been such a big part of my family, <laughs> you know, as artists in New York. That's just who we've been. And now I feel like there may be some more opportunities to tell story again. And it's a very privileged position to be in. Whereas before, when people would ask me questions about story, the curiosity was about how I could meet their vision. Now I feel like there's a curiosity about mine. At the end of the day, I really did, we really did get to create a love letter to my city. And I think I didn't say this before, but I meant to say that that's also part of the black and white of it. It's like really trying to preserve and hold, you know, the city in a place that was such a special time for me. Some people watch the film and they're like, oh, it took place in the 90s, right? And no, it, it takes place kind of now. But there was something about that time in New York where like it wasn't so clean and it wasn't so, <laughs> this is a weird thing to say, ravaged by gentrification. And um, it makes me feel nostalgic about New York. Some days it's a love letter and sometimes it's a Dear John letter because I don't know that I personally will get to experience that New York ever again. In the New York of a bygone era, you grew up within an artist community, jazz musicians, activists, thinkers, they would stay up with your mom and dad until three in the morning, mm -hmm. smoking a little bit of weed. A little bit. Roll a little just, joint here and there. Just enough to keep going. Yes. And they would keep going and going and talking and figuring out who they were in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And your younger self was around that community. Yes. As we leave this conversation... When you look back at that younger self adjacent to those artists, and now you are, can you believe that you're here? No, I can't. You know what I'll say about myself in comparison to those artists? Because I do feel like the movie asks the question, like, what is success? I don't know that I'm necessarily more successful than them. I definitely may be more visible than some of them. But I think the film is about this woman who has to rejigger her idea of what success is. She's been focusing on this thing and focusing on this picture of success. And if she would just turn her head to the left, she'd see that these kids love her. This guy loves her. Her best friend will go to the ends of the earth for her. So I have a higher profile than maybe some of those artists. But the thing that I realize is... Sometimes all that those artists needed was just some resources. I mean, they created a community out of dilapidated lofts and storefronts, you know. And there was a richness there. There was a wealth there, you know, that I'm like, the idea of having to pick up a phone <laughs> to call someone, like not texting or maybe the phone was off and you had to go by there and yell up, hey, Rashid, you know. But that little girl who was privy to all of those conversations and, and rap sessions, as my dad would call them, and jam sessions and laughing and, and pontificating and arguing, like, that has become my life's blood. That has become these important kernels in my storytelling. Because a lot of times my story 
is about just relationships and people kind of confronting each other and also questioning like, well, we share the same skin color. Do we have an obligation to each other? You know, and also the conversation of selling out. Now that my work has kind of permeated a certain space, it's like I was talking about it with my therapist this week about my shifting identity from the struggling artist to the more successful artist. But that little girl, she can't believe it because I think like most kids, you might take things for granted. And it was my mom who put those first seeds of storytelling in me when I was eight years old. I had read this story to her that I'd written. And we were always encouraged to write stories, to perform, to act. But that was how we played. That was like our religious practice, you know, so I wasn't thinking of it as a career. But I read the story to her about this Black family that is tired of all the isms on the on the planet. And they erect this spaceship and they fly to this distant planet where they're the only inhabitants. And for a while, they love the peace. They love the solitude. But then they cannot take the peace and solitude. And they need, as flawed as humans are, they need humanity. So they put that ship back together, ship, S-H-I-P. They put the spaceship back together and fly back to Earth. And I remember reading that to my mom and she had tears in her eyes. And I was like, why is she? So the first thing she said was, oh, my God, you see black people in the future. That was the first thing she said. And then the second thing she said was, you're going to be a great writer one day. And so I think at the time I was just like, oh, she's just saying that. That's just what people say. Now, looking back, I realize like she is the engine to this journey. She's the person who sat me down and showed me great films and encouraged me to write my own stories. And so... I've been thinking about that little girl a lot because she honestly would not be here if it weren't for that. My parents, you know, that struggle and that community of artists that I was raised in. Yesterday was the anniversary of your mother's passing. Mm -hmm. This is a woman that you describe as a cinephile. She was the engine to your own creativity. You grew up watching movies with her. Yep. What do you think she would say? about this film coming out now? I think she would love it. I think she would laugh. She was one of the funniest people. She turned me on to George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and Moms Mabley, Richard Pryor. I think she would have a good time. And I think that she, you know, my mom was a teaching artist for 30 years. And so even though I was one of those teenagers who was a little embarrassed by squatting, living with artists, needing government assistance or whatever, I ended up becoming a teaching artist just like her. So I think she would look at it and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, see, see, I told you it's a good way to supplement your career as an artist. And sure enough, it did. And not only did teaching create a way for me to eat, but you see the kids in this in this in the film, you know, they're an amalgam of all of the amazing young people I met over the years. It gave me a story to tell. So I think that she would laugh at that. Like, mm-hmm, you, you, you try not to be me, and yet you're taking on so much of my tendencies. And I think she'd be really proud, you know, because she was a cinephile. And film was a huge pastime for her. So for her daughter to grow into a filmmaker, a director, I know she'd be really proud. And that's why I post things, because honestly, I'm a little embarrassed by the attention. But I know that if she was here, she'd be, she'd be on Facebook posting stuff, or calling me, though, asking me how to post shit. You know, that's what How do you? OK, but if I wanted to send it to just 10 people, how do I? You know, so I know that she's with me in this moment. And I think she's really proud of me and my brother. And I'm kind of archiving our family history. Well, I'm so glad you did that act of archiving because it resulted in a really <laughs> special movie and you should be proud. I'm, I'm sure you are. Thank you, Sam. Rada Blank, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Same here. I mean, a real full circle moment because I've been listening over the last few years and I think that your podcast is really special, really is more than talk. It's like soul investigation and I feel really honored to be here to be a guest on your show. We'll do a part two with the next movie. We should. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sam. Be well. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Eric Lures, Ashton Pina, and Jill Jurich. Rada's debut film, The 40-Year-Old Version, is now available to stream on Netflix. 
To learn more about Miss Blank, visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. And if you're new to the show, I'd recommend some past conversations with folks like Representative Ilhan Omar, Roxanne Gay, Ted Danson, and Janelle Monet. You can find those and more wherever you do your podcasting, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, wherever you listen, we will be there. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. And as always, this show is made by a village. Our executive producer, Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krisha Shenoy, associate producer, Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are David Harding, Rena Jung, and Kevin Kaur. Music by Dylan Peck. Marketing by Patrice Lee. Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Derek Gabrizak and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back this coming Sunday with Dr. Cornell West. Until then, stay safe and so long. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.